You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 2 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would love for you to follow along with us in one of the pew Bibles that's in front of you. It's on page 472, so you don't have to go find it for yourself. If you do have a Bible that you're following along with and you don't exactly know where to find Psalm 2, this is, might be the easiest book in the entire Bible to find. Just right down the middle. And you should be somewhere in Psalm and then Psalm 2. Last week, Pastor Cody kicked off our summer series in the book of Psalms. We're going to do 11 of them, not all 150 of them. And we're not doing Psalm 119, my son asked me that, if you're not familiar with that one, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And while that may be wonderful, I didn't feel like, Pastor Cody didn't feel like that y'all would want to be here for four hours as we went through every verse of that. So Psalm 119 won't be part of it, but we said last week that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together kind of formed the, the beginning or the introduction to the Psalter or the book of Psalms. And so you're going to see today... What Pastor Cody was looking at last week, how it's going to be expounded today in a more global picture. And so while this psalm doesn't have an inscription above it, if you look through your Bibles, you'll see that some of the psalms will tell us who wrote them and maybe what was going on that was the occasion for it. But we know from Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are explaining and speaking to the peoples and they attribute this psalm to King David, which makes sense. Because this psalm is connected to the promise of 2 Samuel 7 where God speaks to David. God promises to King David that somewhere down his line there will be a king that will reign forever and ever. Which ultimately is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Which is where God made a promise to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. That that Abraham who at that time didn't even have any kids. that, That coming from his line would be a people so great that they would number more than the stars of the sky, and through his people, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so we're looking, we're tracing that in the Old Testament. Who's the one that is to come that is going to bless the entire world and reign on King David's throne forever? Well, if you've been with us in our equip class that Nate referenced earlier, we've been walking through First and Second Kings, and we're not all that far in, but what is abundantly clear is right after King David and King Solomon, it just goes downhill pretty quick. The the nation of Israel is torn into two, and then eventually the northern kingdom gets taken over, and then the southern kingdom. And so if you're an ancient Israelite, you're asking the Lord, hey Lord, you said that there are promises here, but there's not even a throne for someone to sit on to reign your people because they've all been wiped out. And so how are you going to accomplish your promises? But if we step back from that just a minute, it's not a question just for them. Because as we prayed and talked about earlier this morning already, and as as you're aware of all the things that are going on in our world, when we look around, all we see is brokenness and heartache. We see the things that are happening down in Texas and in Buffalo, and there are stories all around the world where there are people that are starving to death today because their governments refuse to allow them to have food in order to line their own pockets. And there's story after story. And it leads us, if we're honest, to ask the question, God, how are you going to supposedly make everything right that is wrong when everything that I see 
is pain and destruction and loneliness. And so as we're thinking through this Psalm 2 today, it got me thinking about three big picture questions. As I was sitting working on this or or reading and, and a story would pop up, a new story would pop up about what's going on in parts of our country and you would read it and it would bring tears to your eyes and And there were times I would just look at my phone that I was reading the article and I would glance towards heaven and say, God, are you seeing this? And then second question, do you care about what I'm seeing? And then thirdly, are you going to do anything about it? And as God often does, our text today is going to answer those three questions. Because when we ask the Lord, are you seeing the brokenness? Are you seeing the wickedness of this world? The answer from God is yes. Because there are many that feel like they don't need God. There are many that feel like they don't want God. But it doesn't change the fact that God sees their plotting. God sees their conspiring. He's very aware of it. Okay, fine. God, you see it. But does that mean you just don't care about what's going on in our world? God, do you care? And the answer again is absolutely yes. Which is why God had a plan from before the foundation of the world that even before brokenness had entered into his creation, that he was going to redeem it by sending his own son to this earth to die on a cross for your sin and my sin so that all of the brokenness would be paid for and it was a plan that one day he would return and restore all of it. To how it should be. But then the question I think sometimes it's a struggle for us, even as Christians. All right, so God, you see it. God, you're telling me you care about it, but are you going to do anything about it? It's one thing for me to see it. It's another thing for me to care about it, but are you going to actually do anything about it? And lastly, and again, the answer is yes. Because there's coming a day where the already enthroned King of Heaven is going to be revealed to be the eternal king that sits on the throne of David. And he's going to come and he's going to exact God's wrath on the wicked and bring blessing to those who are in him. And in the meantime, this is the challenge for us. In the meantime, we're to see this as a grace gift between when God spoke and when Jesus returns the second time. This is a gift for people to respond in faith and worship this king. In reality, I just gave you a summary of Psalm 2. Now, it's my hope that you're going to just leave now. Uh, Really, we want to dig in a little further, but that's the summary. That's what we're going to. This is what God is giving us in Psalm 2, and it it builds, as we said at the beginning, off of Psalm 1. We saw last week that Psalm 1 left us with a fork in the road. Would you live as the blessed one who would go to salvation, or are you going to live as the wicked that leads towards destruction? So as we jump in and look at this psalm more closely, Some people call it a royal psalm or a a coronation psalm. And and what they mean by that is it's possible that David wrote this either looking back towards his coronation as king or for his son Solomon, or it may have been read to future kings. That's really not the main reason we call it a royal or coronation psalm because ultimately this psalm finds its totality, finds its perfect example in Christ. And so as we start as we try to do each week, as we roll up this entire psalm into one statement of what this text is saying to us, see that the wicked rebel against God's authority while the wise submit to the Messiah's king's rule. 
The wicked rebel. The wise submit. And therefore, our main takeaway is that we are to submit to God's anointed king and experience everlasting blessing. So our text today, uh, sometimes you come to a text of the Bible, especially if you're coming to teach it or preach from it, and you're trying to figure out what's the best way to divide it up. This one's very easy. There are four stanzas of three verses each. It doesn't get much better than that. So you'll know kind of where we are because we're going to go in chunks of three. And in the first chunk of three, the first stanza, we're going to see the wicked who rebel in insurrection. The wicked who rebel in insurrection. And I know David just read this well. I'm going to continue to read it as we get to each section so we can all be on the same page. Verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. Their kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one. So here we see the action of these earthly leaders. Coming out of Psalm 1, God has called us to be like the blessed man who will be loved by God and won't perish like the wicked. And yet, Psalm 2 begins with a question of astonishment. Out of Psalm 1, we're left going, yes, we want to be like the blessed one. And yet, Psalm 2 starts with, why? Why in the world would you set yourself up against the God of the universe and His anointed one? And the word plot there in verse 1. Cody said last week when we got to the wise man is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord daily. That word meditates is the same word in Hebrew that we have for plot here. And he said last week that the idea of, uh, of, of the meditating, the word meant there to murmur to oneself. So the wise man is spending his day murmuring to himself, speaking under his breath to himself all of the goodness of who God is. But that's not exactly what's happening in this verse, is it? Now we have the kings of the world who are angry. And they're not murmuring and meditating on the wonderful law of the Lord. They're muttering in bitterness towards the God of this world. See the difference? They've already set themselves against God. In verse 2, it says, The rulers conspire together. Your translation may have take counsel together. Remember Psalm 1, verse 1? The blessed man is the one who does what? Not take counsel from the wicked. And here we have the wicked counseling, coming together, counseling one another. Do you see how this is playing out? That, that we are called to be ones who don't sit in the counsel of the wicked and stand in, with sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. And instead, now we see this playing out that these leaders of our world, and by extension, all of the peoples of the world, Standing together, counseling one another, coming together, talking about how bad God is. We shouldn't be shocked by this. If you go back in your Bibles to Genesis 11, the peoples of the world are together and they decide to do what? Build a high tower. The Tower of Babel, because why? They don't need God. They can come together themselves and they can build this a massive stairway to heaven. This tower up to the skies. Because they together can get together, and in their wisdom, they're gonna, and their might and their power, they're gonna be at a, they don't need God anymore. Yeah, we saw what happened in that situation, and yet this happens over and over and over again. And it says not only are they standing against the Lord, but they're standing against his anointed one. The word behind that is Mashiach, which is where we get the idea of Messiah, translated in Greek, Christ in your New Testaments. And so they're standing against God and his Messiah. 
Again, in Acts 4, Peter and John are speaking, and they see the fulfillment of, right here, these verses, in the murder of Christ at the hands of Herod and Pilate, the leaders of that day. And so in verses 1 through 2, you have these kings and these rulers coming together in their supposed wisdom and their supposed strength, which the Bible shows to be foolishness and weakness. But they come together in anger and they take a stand. And the word stand there, or they set themselves, that's a military term, in which they are declaring their opposition directly to God. This is a full rejection of His order. And then if that's not enough, in verse 3, in their hubris, in their stubbornness, in their arrogance, they decide to open their mouth. After collaborating together, after taking counsel together, now they speak. And what they say to God and what they say to one another is, we don't need God anymore. His rule in our life is oppressive. It's harmful. We see it as slavery. And so we're declaring our autonomy. We're declaring our freedom from you, God. That's what's going on in verse 3. Is there any better picture of sin in our culture today? We don't need you, God. When you think about the the things that are, are, are absolutely right in front of us all the time, Things of sexuality and, 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 and why in the world do, do I care about what some sky god, to use their language, cares about what's going on in my life. This is who I am. This is what I feel. So therefore, I ought to be able to live as I want to. I don't need God and His rule. I'm me, and that's all that really matters. And your best thing to do is just to praise that. We were talking with our daughters at dinner the other night. And we got on subject close to this. And the question became... Has it always been like this? And yes and no, right, is the answer. In our culture, within our couple lifetimes that back, that you've got, there was a sense of shame to living certain lifestyles or living so blatantly. Some of the commercials for finding true love on certain islands or something as if somehow that's how God's design was. And we went from it was shameful to then it was out front to now when that's not even enough, we must celebrate the thing that stands in direct contrast to who God is. Because our culture has said, I don't want your rules. I don't think they're good. I don't think they're helpful. And I think, to be honest, they're holding me back from who I really am. That's the definition of our culture. And that's what these are doing in verses 1 through 3. But it's not really new. We go all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And the serpent comes up to, to them and he says, hey, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman responds, well, actually, we can eat of any tree, just not that one in the middle. If we even touch it, we're going to die. Now, side note, don't add to the word of God. God didn't say don't touch it. So she's already messed up. But the point is, Satan's challenging the word of God. If you eat that, and she says, if we eat of that fruit, we're going to die. And Satan responds, like so much of our world today, you're not going to die. In fact, God knows that if you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God. In other words, what he is saying, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because God wants all the authority and all the power for himself. And he's afraid that if you eat it, you're going to be like him. His challenge is to who God really is. And so Adam and Eve, unfortunately... They buy into this, that God's rules for you in this garden is what Satan's telling them. God's rules for you are oppressive, and they're meant to keep you down. But if you will eat of this, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. But he doesn't want that for you. Of course, we know that's not what God's rules for Adam and Eve were. 
the rules for God's rule for them to not eat of that actually was for their life. It was for their good. It was for them to flourish in his garden that he gave to them. But instead, Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. And they immediately broke the relationship they had with God. And they immediately felt shame. That's why when God comes into the garden, what do they do? They go hide. They immediately, they didn't become like God, like they thought they were going to. Immediately they recognized that he's God and we're not and I'm terrified. And it's all because they believed a lie. A lie that God's rule and his authority are oppressive and meant to keep us down. Kids, let me just for a second, real quick. Maybe you've experienced some of this, maybe not. But the older you get, the more you're going to run into the fact that you're going you're to butt heads at times with your parents. Because you're going to think that somehow the rules they have for you, whether it's bedtime or not too much TV or not going out past a certain time or whatever the other rules may be, you may think that they are just meant to keep you down and to be mean or whatever else. But in fact, God gives us a responsibility to set rules for you for your good. Going to bed at a reasonable time is to give you enough rest because everything we know says that if you get adequate rest, you're going to grow. You're going to grow healthy and strong into the young men and young women that you're called to be, that God made you to be. So, as best you can, give them parents grace and understand they love you. The church for us, we're to do the same thing to our God. His authority isn't meant to keep you down. His authority is to give you life. His authority is to free you from bondages. The foolishness of their statement is that they believed that God was a bondage bringer when everything we know about God is a bondage breaker. Many of you, if you're in Christ, you've experienced that freedom. Unfortunately, often too often our world believes that God is just there to put on restrictions, not to free them up. That's not what he was there to do. So, first three verses. We saw the wicked rebel in insurrection. In verses 4 through 6, we see the Lord who ridicules with indignation. I love verse 4. I just do. There's not a lot of times you read in your Bible where God's laughing. And we don't have the time today to go into all of that. There's, there's times we could look at different people in the Bible laughing at God. And then later laughing because they have to realize that God was right the whole time. Like Sarah laughing when God said she was going to have a baby in her old age. And she laughs, God hears it. And then if you keep reading, she laughs later after she has the baby. God laughs at them. I love it. And why does he laugh? Now, your, your version may say the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Your version may say he who sits in the heaven laughs. I think there's two main reasons God laughs. And the first one is simply because he sits in the heavens. He sits on his throne as the great king. He isn't, he isn't doing this. He isn't like, oh my goodness. Oh man, what am I going to do? He's pacing back and forth trying to figure out how is he going to respond to these super powerful kings and people who rebel against him. God's not doing that. Now I know he's not human like us, but to use human language as he does in his Bible. I picture him sitting in his throne with his arm up like this, just looking down going, that's pretty hilarious. That's what I picture. I picture God laughing because he's sitting. He's not wondering what to do next, but he sits there in perfect peace because he knows what's coming. And then secondly, I think he laughs because he sits where? In the heavens. It's not an earthly throne that he occupies. It's a throne of heaven that has authority over all of creation. And if you're in a throne in heaven over all of creation that you've made, what in the world would you have to fear that's coming out of earth? And the answer is absolutely nothing. 
not to call it any particular toddlers, but I'm calling out one that's just turned two. So it's mine. But if, if a toddler, I pictured this like a toddler who, you know, when you go to correct them or you, you have them move out of the way or something like this, and they don't, they, they want you gone. They don't like that you're over there to change their shirt or whatever else. And so they push with all of their might to try to push you out of the way. Right? That's like one of those movies where the, the, it's zoomed in and you see that toddler giving all the might and then it zooms out and you realize that he's like this tall and there's not a thing he's going to do to move you out of the way. And so you look down and you laugh. Not because it's the most hilarious thing in the world, but even in his rebellion, you realize it's going to do nothing to change you one inch. That's what I picture God doing. God looks down at us like toddlers going, yeah, that's great. You're not going to change one thing that I'm doing. One writer put it this way, the derisive laughter of God is the comfort to all who love righteousness. It's the laughter of the might of holiness. It's the laughter of the strength of love. God doesn't exalt over the sufferings of sinning men. He, he does hold in derision all proud boasting and violence of such as to seek to prevent his accomplishment of his will. All that just says is we can take comfort in God's laughter because there's not a thing that can do to change what he is going to accomplish. And so God laughs. Another writer, Boyce, and I'm just working this in here because of how he phrases it. He says, God does not even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. And anytime you can work imbeciles into a sermon, I feel like you must. And so if you remember anything this morning, God laughs at these imbeciles because they have no authority to do anything. They think they're in charge. They think they have no need of God. But instead, they have no idea of how fleeting and how minuscule their power is compared to God's. There's a famous, um, throughout all the centuries, there have always been people that are trying to get rid of all of God's work in this world. Even Paul himself at one point tried to put to death all the early Christians only to then be saved and realize that God had much better things going on than he even realized. One famous example is the, uh, an opponent of Christianity was the Roman emperor Diocletian in the late 3rd, early 4th century. He was a such determined enemy of Christianity that he persecuted the church mercilessly. And he had fancied himself that he had actually defeated Christianity. And so he set up two monuments at the frontier of his empire with these inscriptions. The first one is Diocletian for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and in the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. And on the second one he said Diocletian for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. There are some of you in here who probably are much better and have read your history more than I have. I don't really know anything about Diocletian, and here's why. He's dead. He's gone, and he's a footnote in the pages of history. Jesus isn't dead, and Christianity isn't gone, and in fact, it's flourishing and spreading all over the world. The Lord ridicules them in their foolishness. And then in verse 5, the Lord speaks. And he speaks in his anger, and he speaks in his wrath. God laughs in heaven, but he doesn't only laugh. He doesn't remain inactive. He speaks. But before he acts against defiant man, he opens his mouth and he speaks to us in our rebellion. And this is what I said earlier. This is what I want you to see as a grace gift of our Lord. He had every right to come in immediately and wipe us out every time the moment we sinned. But he didn't. He first warned and told us of Christ. So that in this time, we could respond to his Messiah King. 
And he says in verse 6, I have already installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. Zion, if, just to keep us all on the same page, Zion was a fortified area that David eventually took over at King David, and it became synonymous with Jerusalem. Well, obviously, as, the, as Israel went away and was taken over by foreign powers later in the New Testament, Zion becomes a, 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 word, a city that's used to describe the holy city, the future eternal kingdom of God, when God remakes the earth and reigns here with His people. And so what God is ultimately saying is, my king is already in place. In all of your conspiring, in all of your plotting, go ahead because I've already installed my king and he's going to be there forever. But before God acts, God tells us, as defiant mankind, that there is a greater and eternal king that is reigning now. So inherent, inherent in this declaration is the opportunity to recognize that. The opportunity to worship this king Messiah. In our third stanza, we've seen the wicked rebel, we've seen the Lord, and how He speaks, and how He responds, and now we see the Son who reigns with a global inheritance. In verse 7, now this Messiah King opens His mouth and speaks. God's Messiah tells us of what the Lord said to Him on His coronation day. The anointed one of God, the one who would reign on the throne of David forever, says today, God says to him, today I have become your father. Or maybe your translation says, today I have begotten you. Now this isn't a wording that means that somehow this was a creation out of what was not. As like when a son is born to a father like we have today. This is what's wrapped up and it's much bigger than we have time for today. But ultimately what's going on here is this is speaking to an eternal relationship. A spiritual relationship between the Godhead where God the Father relates to God the Son. And God the Son being sent on our behalf. It's a relationship that is depicted in the baptism of Jesus. In the synoptic gospels when Jesus comes up out of the water and the Lord God of heaven speaks and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. All of the Davidic kings that have come before Christ would have been like a little s son of God. They were there to represent God to the people and to lead the people in a way that would honor the Lord. But all of them, as we've been studying, have failed over and over and over. But there was one that was coming that would have a unique relationship with God, for He is God Himself, God the Son. Hebrews 1 highlights this when it's comparing Jesus to the angels. And He says to the angels, Which one of you has He ever said, This is my Son? None of them is the answer. Because it is Jesus that is the Son of God, is the Messiah King. And then the Son is given, or asked, Ask of me, the Lord says, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. So to the Son, God the Father says, What do you want for your inheritance? Because I've got it all, and all of it will be yours. I was thinking this week, um, in, in this scene, when I was picturing what was going on of God the Father speaking to His Son about His inheritance, I was picturing the uh, Lion King movie. I haven't seen the remake, but, so I'm referencing the animated version. And early in the morning, Mufasa the king is taking out his son Simba, and they go out on a big rock that overlooks all that they uh, is their kingdom. Early in the morning, the sun's coming up, and he, he looks out and he says, everything the light touches is our kingdom. But then he says... To his son, a king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. And one day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And the young son says, all of this will be mine? He says, yeah, everything. 
And the sun's pondering that. He says, everything the light touches. And then he looks over and he sees this shadowy area. And he says, what about that shadowy place? He says, Mephasa the king says, no, no, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. It was interesting because when you think about a king handing off to his son all that will be his, it's a beautiful scene in the movie. But spiritually speaking, it is so limited. It's limited in two ways. Because all earthly reigns are limited by time and by scope. When the kings and the rulers in verses 1-3 through three saw themselves as powerful, in reality their reign is ever go- always going to be limited by their own lifespan and in the territory in which they accomplished by taking over. Look through history. Multiple times people have tried to take over the entire world. and I mean, outside of the movies that Hollywood produces, nobody accomplishes it. And it's still at the end of the day, they're going to die and it will be all torn apart later. But Christ's inheritance isn't that way. His inheritance is global. It's over the entire world. And it's everlasting. If we followed this all the way to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15... It describes this exciting consummation of Christ's inheritance when it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign where and how long? Forever and ever. Christ is going to reign forever and ever over an inheritance that is global. And it says in verse 9 that he will break them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery. For all the power that these people rebel against our God think they have. The Lord's anointed has such power that they are like... Now, I thought about doing this today. I thought about bringing a clay flower pot and an aluminum bat, and I thought about just shattering right here on stage. And then I thought about uh, Mr. Stephen, who keeps our church so very clean, and I figured that would not be a very loving thing to do to him. So you'll just have to now, in your mind, picture clay flower pot, baseball bat. That's what would happen... And that's how much power our Lord Jesus has. In other words, there is no reason and there is no benefit to rebelling against this God and His anointed. And in our fourth stanza, we see the wise who respond with invitation. Or respond to the invitation. The wise respond to the invitation. So now, verse 10, So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. And rejoice with trembling. In the first three verses, the wicked sought counsel together, which only produced a magnification of their wickedness and their foolishness. But now the psalmist gives counsel to them. And he says, be wise. Put away your foolishness. And then in verse 11 says, give God the respect he deserves and rejoice in a proper posture. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. The psalmist calls the kings of the earth to surrender to God, giving Him proper reverence. In other words, in their surrender, in their submitting to them, they can rejoice, but not in somehow that they've earned it. It's in a way that they recognize that they're not God. We're not equals with God. And verse 12 says, pay homage to the Son, or your version may say, kiss the Son. The meaning there is is the picture of someone who is an inferior showing reverence, showing awe to someone who is in power, a dignitary, a king, someone like that. I do think it hints, I do think it hints at the affection that God desires to have with us. Not as Hollywood defines affection, but I mean a genuine love and care for him. 
In other words, when we come in here each week, our goal, our hope is that you don't just know more information about your Bible, but that you're seeing the God of the Bible, that you're knowing Him, that as you spend time in prayer, you're actually getting to know who He is, that you're spending time with Him. That's why we talk about it in relationship terms, because our God desires an affectionate relationship with His people. And we said this at the beginning, and I say it again, if the kings and the judges of the earth are called to submit themselves to God, how much more us who are not the kings and the rulers need to submit ourselves before the God of the universe and His anointed? Because it says also in verse 12, for His anger may ignite at any moment, or may be quickly kindled, yours might say. We said in verse 5 that it was a grace gift that God spoke before He acted. And we looked in, ver- in James 5 just a few weeks ago as we were finishing up that study. And all throughout the Bible that there is coming a day of the Lord. That Jesus came the first time to die on the cross for our sins. But he's coming back as the ruler king. And in that moment, he's going to exact his judgment, his final judgment on sin and wickedness. We don't know when that day is coming, but it is coming. So we've been giving a time now, especially if you're not in Christ, to repent and to turn and to see this Savior King as the King of the universe. One day, His long-suffering, God's long-suffering against sin will be over and His wrath will be shown as fire consumes kindling. We don't know when that's coming. We've learned of anything over the last few years. We should know that we are not guaranteed anything past right now. That's why we say today is the day of salvation for you if you're not in Christ. Because there's coming a day when Jesus is going to judge your sin and my sin for all of eternity. So there is built-in grace here. And then we see the very last phrase, all who take refuge in Him are what? Happy. The word there is the same word translated blessed in some of your translations. The same word that is in Psalm 1-1. And we said that's why we see these things going together. The blessed one is the one who what? Doesn't take counsel and stand with sinners and doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. It's the one that meditates on the law of the Lord. And the, and the outcome for the blessed one is what? Delight in the Lord. Salvation in the Lord. The, one, the, the, the outcome for the wicked is what? Perishing and destruction. And so what we see at the end of all of this in Psalm 2 is the blessed one, the one who's going to receive all of the salvation of the Lord is ultimately... The one who submits and worships to the Messiah King of Psalm 2. The Bible is abundantly clear. It's not based on your ability or your strength or your faithfulness to God of whether or not you're going to be counted as the one who is wise or the one who is wicked. Because those who defy God are broken, but those who depend on Him are blessed. The psalmist leaves us with the choice that Pastor Cody said last week. Which group are you in? Are you in the broken or are you in the blessed? We were left last week challenged to walk in wisdom and not in wickedness. Someone pressed that onto us. But we know from the totality of Scripture, from Genesis 3 onward, that, that we can't live up to the standard of the blessed man in Psalm 1. We can't leave last week and then put it together with this week that somehow, if we can just be good enough, we're going to move on to salvation and not be part of the group of wicked. We should know that. It's been abundantly clear that we fall short of that standard. Which is why Psalm 2 is a psalm of hope for us. 
We can't claim the promises of salvation of Psalm 2, or Psalm 1 on our own. But the perfect blessed man, the God's anointed, his Messiah King, has already come and made a way for us to be blessed. Our rest isn't in how well we can continually submit to God, because we know we're going to falter. But our rest is that God's anointed King already submitted to him perfectly, even to the point of dying on the cross for the people of his kingdom. You can look all around the world. You're not going to find many leaders that are going to die for your good. And even if they did, would it matter anyway? The King Jesus did. And it was for your good. Jesus came once already. He didn't come then, though, as the ruling king. He came as the sacrificial lamb. That he died in your place and for you. That all of our sin placed on him on the cross. That when he died, it paid for your sins. That you could be made right with God we're also warned that he is returning as the ruling king to judge our sin as it is. And those who are not in Christ will be forever separated from him. Look, if you're a part of God's kingdom, or if you're a follower of Christ, if you've already submitted to God's rule, then Jesus has an assignment for you today. I don't know if you were picking up on it. When we looked at Jesus' inheritance, it was what? All the nations of the world. And what did Jesus say to his disciples before he ascended to go sit at the right hand of God? What did he say? Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of where? All the nations. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Don't miss that connection. If you're already in Christ, we have an assignment of our, from our God. We are called to participate in Christ's inheritance. That doesn't mean, by the way, we get to just sit back and wait for Christ to return and enjoy all the benefits. We're going to get to do that. But we're also called to help see it come to fruition. I don't know if you've looked at it like that. We're called to help see Christ's inheritance come to fruition. There's going to continue to be leaders and kings and rulers and groups of people and societies that are going to continue to mock God's authority. They're going to set themselves up against God's anointed. But remember verse 4. God laughed because the war has already been won at the cross of Christ. What we're facing now, as bad as it may seem at times, are at best leftover battles as we await our Messiah King's return for His people. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, God, this morning, I thank you for Psalm 2. I thank you for the, how it comes after Psalm 1, to our call for wisdom, our call for walking, meditating on your word daily. We got all of the text of scripture reminds us in my own life testifies to the fact that I can't do that as well as I need to. God, I thank you that from before the foundation of the world, you have already established your king. And he's not going to reign in just a small section. He's not going to reign for just a time, but he's going to reign over all the earth for all of eternity. So God, this morning, when we, when we think about all the mess that is going on in our world, God, may we, as we said earlier, be broken because it is a testimony of how much we have rebelled against you. But God, let us also be hopeful. And reminded that you have already in Christ won the war. God, I thank you for the people that are here this morning. 
I pray that throughout this week you will recall to them different parts of your scripture, that they may be encouraged in whatever it is that they go about this week, and that we may be challenged to participate in your son inheriting all that you've given him to inherit. God, this morning we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this time to worship you. In the name of Jesus, your anointed one, amen.